Acts chapter 19, we have left off with Paul and his team in Ephesus. He spends more time in Ephesus at one time than he does at any other church, at least that we have recorded. He's there for at least three years. He was a year and a half in Corinth, now three years roughly in Ephesus. It's a major city, all kinds of gymnasiums, this great big temple to Artemis. We'll talk more about that as we go through. But we've left kind of in the middle of this uh, revival, a revolution really that happens in Ephesus. If you go back to chapter 19, verse 17, there was the situation where these itinerant magicians, these exorcists, remember the goddess Diana, that is the patron goddess of Ephesus. She's connected with, um, with magic and the world of darkness, as well as fertility and other things. So into that, Paul has brought the gospel of Jesus and God with signs and wonders and some of these things that have happened has really caused the fear of God to be growing in that area. We saw these seven sons of Sceva try to cast out this demon. They didn't really know Jesus, but they just kind of magically wanted to use his name like an incantation, like they were used to doing, and it didn't work. Had quite the opposite effect. These guys got beat up by a demon-possessed guy, and everybody took notice. And what that spurred on was a tremendous revival in that area. Remember, people came bringing their magic books, 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of the books that they brought. I totaled it up about 138 years worth of work. That it would total a denarius, a silver coin, is one day's labor for an average worker in that time. So 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days wages, 137 years worth of labor, or one year for 137 people. This was no small repentance. This was no small deal as these people brought this big book burning and they said, we're going to burn our connection to our past. We're no longer going to live in compromise. And so when you start burning books and we start living differently, that affects the world you live in. That affects the city you live in. And so not only did uh, verse uh, 17 tells us the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You see, before that, the name of Diana. And at that time, the name of Diana was magnified. That was the big deal If you went to Ephesus, it was all about the goddess Diana or Artemis. They're interchangeable. So when you went to Ephesus, you saw her temple. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, more than 100 columns, 60 feet tall, all made of marble. And inside, there was the statue of the goddess Diana. And she was, as I said, a fertility goddess and multi-breasted thing and It just, that was the center of life. Much like if you go to Charlottesville, who do you learn about when you go to Charlottesville? You learn about Thomas Jefferson. Except the difference is he was a real person. Diana is mythology. That's why her worship kind of changes. You know, when things are rooted in mythology, they can be whatever you want, right? You made it up anyway, so you can make it be what you want. Even history sometimes works out that way. And so it's no wonder that, you know, things in a culture of idolatry are a mess because there's no foundation things mutate and form differently. And so that's the kind of culture that they're in. But now the name of Jesus is getting known. Now Jesus is getting traction. His name is growing. People are now talking about Diana and they're talking about in other realms, they're talking about Jesus. And look down at verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So now God's word there in Ephesus is gaining traction, is gaining a grip. 
the word for prevailed means to have the power like of a military army. So God's word is making strides. Now, this is troubling to some because what's happening, and this is why I love this passage so much, is the fact that these Christians have now gotten serious. There's a fear of the Lord. They've gotten serious about their walk with God. They're burning their books. They're changing their lifestyles. They're not living in compromise. It's impacting the culture. And that's always the way it should work. One man wrote this, no matter how noble may be the churches that we build, no matter how solemn may be the religious services which we celebrate, no matter how earnestly we may preach the gospel, no matter with what fervor we may pray to God to grant us a great religious revival, we shall fail utterly if in our ordinary life we show no practical proof that in the kingdom of heaven to which we profess to belong, there is a loftier type of virtue and character than in the world outside. See, unless it actually makes an impact on our life, there's no cultural revival. There's no impact. But in Ephesus, because of their decision, now what happens, what we're introduced here just in a minute in verse 21 as we begin to pick up, we're introduced to not just a revival in the church. People aren't just attending church, and that's the thing. It's changing the culture that they live in, and it's impacting the economy of the area. Watch what happens. Verse 21 tells us that when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. I remember Macedonia is that area of northern Greece where Philippi is, where Thessalonica is, where Berea is. Paul visited and planted churches there. When he had passed through there and Achaia, that's where Corinth is, southern Greece, he wanted to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Paul was the kind of guy that, man, you couldn't keep this guy in a cubicle. He just loved to get out. He was always very purposeful in deciding he wanted to go out and visit places and plant churches and do that kind of thing. So he has these plans. He has plans in the Spirit. Do you have plans? Do you make plans in the Spirit? I mean, do you have, are all your plans about we're going to go on vacation here, we're going to do this thing and do that thing? Man, life is a vapor, James tells us. Make plans. Make plans of what you're going to do for the Lord because you don't, it won't happen if you don't plan it, right? You have to plan to have a morning devotional time. You have to plan to go on a mission trip. You have to plan to get involved in VBS. Those things don't just happen. If you don't plan them, they'll never happen because the emergency things will all, the things that seem to be emergencies will always take over your life and you'll never actually live the things you want to do because the things you don't want to do that you have to do just occupy your time because you never make that time. Paul said, I'm going to make time. I have plans in the spirit. And so he sent into Macedonia, again, northern Greece, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Remember, Ephesus is in what they called at that time Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So Paul says, look, I'm going to hang out here. Man, revival is kicking. The church is growing. Jesus' name is being magnified. I'm going to stay here for a little while longer, wrap up some loose ends, get some discipleship going. You guys, Timothy and Erastus, you go on ahead of me to Macedonia and I'll catch up with you. And I just want to point out one thing. It says he sent two of those who ministered not with him or not for him. They ministered to him. Sometimes we picture the Apostle Paul as this great individual soldier. You know, he's out there slugging it out for the Lord on his own. And that's not the case. He had a team of people that served with him and actually ministered to him. Timothy and Erastus. And it's wonderful because that's how the body of Christ works. 
Some of you go, Steve, your job is not in danger. <laughs> I have no desire to talk to 250 people on a Sunday morning. But you might have other gifts. I mean, imagine if the bathrooms didn't get cleaned or the carpets didn't get vacuumed, that you can be those that minister to the Lord by ministering to the leadership. And that's what Paul had. He had those around him. There, there's a team around. And being part of that team is an awesome thing. So Paul has these others ministering with him and literally ministering to him like Joshua and Moses, like Elisha and Elijah. You may not be the one that's out in front, but sometimes, you know what? It's those people behind the scenes that really support the ministry. They're the ones that do all the really, the, the nitty gritty work so that the guy who speaks can do it. I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for the whole slew of people in this church that do all the things that they do so that I can sit here and preach the gospel to you and to your friends and to your relatives when you drag them to church, right? You got to come here. So now this is going on and that gives us a time marker. Verse 23 says, and about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. The way is the church. The early church was known as the way. There arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Yeah, picture him with his group of tradesmen there. You know we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger, which is the real issue for him, of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So it's about that time, during this time of revival, during this time really of a cultural revolution, there arises a commotion. Anytime there's a cultural revolution, you know, swinging, there's a pendulum, right? We all recognize that in the world, there's a pendulum. Culture is very unstable. How many of you know that you've seen culture change now? We're watching culture change. We're watching the pendulum swing in a direction where in America and in some ways around the world, Culture is shifting. And I printed out a couple of articles. This one article I printed out, uh, this is from the New York Times 2015, talks about the current cultural shift. Some trace it back to the 1960s, but actually this man says it goes back before that. It says the real pivot point of our current cultural shift, the pendulum swinging, goes back to the end of World War II. By the fall of 1945, Americans had endured 16 years of hardship, stretching back through the Depression. They were ready to let loose and say farewell to all of that. There followed what historian Alan Patigny called the renunciation of renunciation. The amount of consumer advertising on the radio exploded. Magazines ran articles on the wonderful lifestyle changes that were going to make life easier. Ultraviolet lights that would sterilize dishes in place of dishwashing. There was a softening in the moral sphere. In 1946, Rabbi Josh Liebman published a book called Peace of Mind that told everybody to relax and love themselves. He wrote a new set of commandments, including thou shalt not be afraid of thy hidden impulses. Thou shalt love thyself. Liebman's book touched a nerve. It stayed atop the New York Times bestseller list for 58 weeks. 
Now, some people think that this is new. This goes back to 1946. See, culture gains traction over time and people inherit values and ways of thinking. Let's read on. A few years later, Harry Overstreet published The Mature Mind, advised people to discard the doctrine based on human sinfulness and embrace self-affirmation. That book was on the top of the list for 16 weeks. Fast forward to 1952, Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, which rejected a morality of restraint for an upbeat morality of growth. That book was on the bestseller list for 98 weeks. Then comes humanistic psychology led by guys like Carl Rogers, who was an influential psychologist. He followed the same basic line, human nature is intrinsically good. People need to love themselves more. They need to remove external restraints on their glorious selves. Man's behavior is exquisitely rational, he writes, moving with subtle and ordered complexity toward the goal his organism is endeavored to achieve. The self-esteem movement comes after that, reshapes the atmospheres in schools and human resource departments and across American society. He says, in short, American popular culture pivoted. Once the dominant view was that the self is to be distrusted, but external institutions are to be trusted. But now you see the pendulum has swung. The dominant view is that self is to be trusted and external constraints are to be distrusted. And so we see that playing out in our culture of hyper-individualism, where everybody's right, but nobody's wrong. Where everybody gets to do what they want to do, if it makes them feel good, if it works for them. There's no right, there's no wrong. That's the culture we live in. That's where the pendulum has come. He ends up saying at the end, which is interesting, so perhaps the culture needs a rebalance. The romantic culture of self-glorification has to be balanced with an older philosophic tradition based on the realistic acknowledgement that we're all made of crooked timber. It's not a Christian article. And this is an article just by someone who's paying attention to the world they live in. We're all made of crooked timber and that we need help to cope with our own tendency to screw things up. Say amen to that. That's why we're here, right? It's not old philosophy. It's not new culture. It's Jesus Christ. Remember, he told the parable, Jesus did the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. The wise builder and the foolish builder. The foolish builder was the builder who built on shifting sand. He built on an unstable foundation, substrata that was not reliable. And then when the winds came, they blew. The winds of new culture come in. The winds of change come in and, and it blows that house down. And then you rebuild it on the sand again and it blows that one down. And no wonder people have identity issues. Nobody knows who they are. We live in a culture where we trust science and data, but somehow when it comes to gender, we can't figure out male and female. You see, it's a paradox, isn't it? We believe that science is what we trust. We'll do a scientific study. You don't have to do anything more than observation to know male and female. But now we're questioning identity and question. So it's shifting sand, folks. Look, the current culture will not last. This beautiful temple to Artemis, to Diana, you know what's left of that today? It's been torn down and rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt from its days of glory. If you go to Ephesus now, what you'll see is one representative column sticking out of a marsh. It was built on a marsh, by the way. Who builds on a marsh, right? Isn't that what the parable is saying that Jesus told? Who builds on a marsh? It won't last. You build on the shifting sand or you build on the rock. You dig deep and you give your soul an anchor. 
and the pendulum swings this way and the pendulum swings that way and people freak out on this end and people freak out on that side. And how is it that you can remain calm and cool because the word of God endures forever, church? But the church has forgot that because see, sometimes now we can have a Christian culture. We can have church without Christ. We can do religious things without Jesus. We'll see that when we get to the end of this passage. So let me give you one more definition of culture because this is just too important. Geert Hofstede has done a lot of studies in culture because he worked for IBM. IBM sends people all over the world. This is years ago. IBM sends people all over the world. And you from America have a job to do in China. And you go to China and eye contact is different. Communication is different. Male-female relationships are different. Authority structure is different. Individualism versus collectivism is different. And so he wanted to have a resource so that if you American culture person go to a Chinese culture that you don't get blown out of the water thinking everybody's so rude around here or that you don't be rude to them because things are different culturally. So here's what culture is. This guy who studied it defined culture as the collective programming of the mind. Notice that. The collective programming of the mind that distinguishes the members of one group or category of people from others. Culture is in its broadest sense a cultivated behavior a way of life of a group of people, behaviors, beliefs, values, and symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them and that are passed along by communication and imitation from one generation to the next. So in Ephesus, Diana was dominating. There wasn't just a cult of Diana. There was a culture. Everything surrounded the temple, buying shrines, buying votives, buying things to sacrifice. And then you'd go there on a pilgrimage and you'd buy your little, you know, your little statue of this fertility goddess so you could take her home with you and then you could worship her in your home. And the whole thing was a culture all built around Diana. But now people's minds are getting reprogrammed by Jesus. See, Paul's brought in a challenge, the gospel. And it's challenged the culture in Ephesus. And people are starting to feel it now because the church has produced a cultural shift. See, you think that you are just passive in this whole thing called life. You think that culture happens and you're a victim. Can I tell you something, church? In Ephesus, the church was not a victim. The church was defining the culture of the area they live in. You know, if you go right now, or I read this a few years ago, but I'm sure it still exists today. If you go to in Pakistan, areas of Pakistan, there are villages that have no schools. And so the people from these villages call up the government and they say, would you come put a school here for our kids? And the government says, no, we're not giving you a school. But guess who hears about it? The Taliban hears about it. Taliban has a culture, symbols, ideologies, values to pass on. They will fill the void and be glad to educate the kids. And the Christians go, well, I'm glad that I'm home safe and happy. You see what happens as Paul goes out and Ephesus. I'm, I'm trying to paint for you this picture of of this changing culture. And that's what gets the attention of Demetrius, the silversmith. He makes shrines of Diana. The problem is he calls together his trade meeting of local 666 of shrine makers. The Shriners, I guess you could say. Shriners are a good thing, but this is the Shriners, the bad thing. And he says, guys, we got trouble. I mean, nobody's buying our statues anymore. That's what happens when Christian culture takes over. When Christ culture takes over, it changes the way you use your money. And again, you think you're passive. You think, well, I don't do those things. I'm not into that thing. I don't do pornography. Other people do that stuff. But you think you're passive. You have money. And your money is how you vote. You say, well, I don't, I'm not into pornography. 
or I'm not into alcohol, or I'm not into violence. But Paul talked in Romans chapter 1, not just about those who do such things, but about those who approve of them. Can I remind you of something? That every time you spend a dollar, you cast a vote. Because sex trade industry would not exist unless men, corrupt men, used it. Pornography would not exist unless people utilized it. Alcohol would not be rampant unless people bought it. There'd be no drug dealers if there was nobody to deal to. You understand what I'm saying? Every time a revival happens, it changes the culture and the culture changes the morals because values change. Because Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that we are transformed by the renewing or the reprogramming of our minds. And that changes the way we spend our money and our time. And now people start to notice because it impacts their wallet. I was in Nepal visiting with those guys when we were there and I met a guy who sold prayer flags at the temple. You know, you've seen them flying on, you know, Mount Everest and all that. They got the prayer flags. So he's selling prayer flags for a dollar. I'm like, oh, okay, let me talk to this guy. So I'm like, tell me about your prayer flag. He explains it to me. And I said, so wait a second, you tell me I put this thing up and when the wind blows, it carries my prayers to Buddha. Yeah, that's right. And he's just, he's making a buck, you know, just like these guys are making a buck off their shrines. And I said, let me ask you a question. Is Buddha alive? And he looked at me like crazy, like no one had ever asked him that before. He said, um, no. I said, well, how's he going to answer my prayers? It's a simple question, right? He didn't sell me a flag. <laughs> but isn't that the point? I mean, what do you need a prayer flag for when you have access to the throne of grace by Jesus Christ? I don't need a flag. So sales of flags are down and sales of shrines and idols are down. And this is a problem for them because it's hurting them financially. So he gets his group together and he gives them a pep talk. You guys know that this is our livelihood. You're touching our livelihood. And this is a bad thing. So he gets them stirred up with that. And he says, not only that, but man, everywhere, nobody's going to buy shrines anywhere because Paul is being so effective in his ministry that everywhere people are believing him when he says that these gods are not gods that are made with hands. Now, he did not have to take his, you know, his signs and protest in front of the temple of Diana. You know, down with Diana, down with Diana. Come on, Timothy, come on, Erastus, grab your signs. Let's pray. Down with Diana. He didn't do that. He just taught the truth. And as the truth set people free, it affected the culture they lived in, and it started to hurt them financially. And that's not what we want to do. We don't set out to change culture. We set out to save people. And we don't want to hurt people, but maybe you need a new job. Maybe the prostitute gets saved. She gets a new job. She said, I can't live that way anymore. I, used, I knew a guy who was a used car salesman. Got saved, so I can't lie anymore. He got a new job. He actually got, he's still selling used cars, but for a guy who was honest. God honors that kind of stuff. So he stirs these guys up, uh, verse 27. Not only this trade of ours in danger of falling to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. And he appeals to them culturally may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. You guys, this is about more than us. He gives them a bigger picture. It's about more than us, guys. It's about our great goddess, Diana. I think maybe sometimes they love Diana and money more than we love Jesus. I mean, we sit quietly aside and don't say anything. Like, I don't want to say anything. Hey, wait, what about the magnificence of Jesus? What about this great God that we serve? Well, Verse 28 says, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Remember where she is now, folks. Is anybody that worships Diana of the Ephesians now? 
Nope. You go there, where's your temple? Nada. One single column. But at that time, they thought the thing they were into was the most important thing in the world, but it wouldn't last. What is the thing you're into now you think is the most important thing in the world? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, 25,000 seats, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Paul wants to go in. This mass riot has broken out. And Paul says, man, preaching opportunity, 25,000 people are so gathered. Who knows how many people? I'm going to preach. And they were like, no, 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 Paul, you can't go in and they'll tear you limb from limb. Then some of the officials, uh, verse 31, of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them, pay attention, church, most of them did not know why they had come together. Do you know people that you talk to that are carrying this banner or shouting that thing? They don't understand what they're saying. They're just saying it because they're caught up in the culture or they're caught up in the mentality and they don't really know what's behind that. They don't really understand the issue. Do you remember the whole 99%, 1% thing that happened, this leaderless movement that was a number of years ago? They started interviewing people. Many of the people that they interviewed that were out there sleeping in the park, they didn't really know what it was about. Hey, there was a thing going on. They wanted to be part of it. They didn't really know what the root of it was. So many people, that's the thing about culture is it just shifts and so many people don't, they don't even know what they're doing or why. They don't know what's why. They had no idea about this private meeting with Demetrius the silversmith and the fact that he was really worshiping money and it was hurting his business. And now the whole city's in uproar and they don't know why. That's a lot like our culture, isn't it? They cried one thing, some cried another. They, they didn't even know why. It was confusion. So they drew out Alexander uh, out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward and Alexander motioned with his hand, couldn't shut people up, couldn't quiet them down and wanted to make his defense but when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, they chanted in a stadium. Whoa, that never happens today, does it? Oh, don't go there, Steve. For two hours, they cried out, great is our team. Great is this thing. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd down, finally, after two hours, he quiets the crowd. And he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? They had a legend in the first temple, probably some piece of meteorite that had come down. They said it fell from the stars, fashioned it, carved it into the first statue of Diana. Over the years, it got more elaborate, and, but that's what they're making reference to. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another in a formal sense. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. So the whole riot had happened. They were in danger of Rome hearing about it and coming to shut it down and, and it projecting badly on Ephesus. There's no formal charges. Let's dissolve the mob. We're not going to hear it here. The courts are for this. And so Paul is exonerated in a, in a way, isn't he? 
He's not beaten up. He's not charged with anything. Again, he's not been talking about what he's against in a public way. He's not been doing public displays. He's been teaching privately in the school of Tyrannus. And his teaching has been like leaven in a positive way. It's gotten out there. When you talk, folks, you've got to talk to people. If you really believe what you believe, if you've really been set free, if you've really found a benefit in the truthfulness of worshiping Jesus Christ, don't other people deserve to hear? But it might cause a problem. No, it will cause a problem. And it causes a problem today. Now, Paul's not accused of hate speech by saying, this is right. We believe that they're not gods. And so he's let free. Now, the interesting thing about this as I close up is I mentioned this great goddess, Diana. Where is she today? Where's her temple today? We talked about that. The interesting thing to me is that fast forward in history, what, 40 years or so, book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John, who, by the way, lived out his days in Ephesus. The Apostle John is firmly connected to the city of Ephesus. He's exiled the Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. You know it, right? And in the beginning of that book, after John comes out of exile, he settles down where? Ephesus. It's not Patmos and Ephesus are not too far apart. He ministers in the church there. And the book of Revelation is written. And there's a letter to what church, folks? The church in Ephesus. One of the letters of the seven churches is a letter to Ephesus. And in that letter, there's many commendations for this church. Hey, you guys, I know your works. You've been patient. You've dealt with false apostles. You've dealt with liars. You're doing all that. But I have this against you, he says, to the church in Ephesus. What's he say I have against you? You have left your first love. You've left your first love. Isn't that interesting? Here's the church. This church having this great impact, he says, you've left your first love. You know, think about a marriage if you have something else, let's say a husband and he loves hunting or he loves his job or he loves his hobby more than he loves his wife. They're still married. But she would say, I have this against you. You love work more than me. You love that stupid dog ears or you love that thing you know, more than me. You love that hobby or vice versa. Would that fly in any of your homes? You see, we can still do church but have left our first love. And I'm not sure, I didn't look it up, but I'm not sure that there's a church in Ephesus right now. The condemnation was if you don't repent and do the first things again. Repent, he says, do the first things again. What were the first things? He would say to them, read Acts 19 again, church in Ephesus. Read about those days when you weren't willing to compromise. You came confessing. You came purging all that leaven out of your lives. You came getting rid of that burning, the, the bridges to the past life. And, but now you've softened, you've compromised, you're you're sort of Jesus and, you know, I've got Jesus, but I got all these other things that are really more important. And he said, I'll take your lampstand. You will no longer be a light to your community. And they cease to be a light for their community. And so will we, you guys. Culture doesn't change because of Washington, D.C. Culture doesn't change because it's a problem in schools. It's home. It's your heart, your home. When an individual person gives their life to Christ and their minds are transformed and renewed, that affects your family. And when it affects your family, you live differently. It begins to affect your neighborhood. It begins to affect your county. And pretty soon, you start to help that pendulum swing back. Because we say, you know what? We believe these are the true things. We believe in absolute truth. We believe that the word of God endures forever. We believe in Jesus Christ. 
and we reiterate those creeds and we live according to them. And that's how you change a culture. You don't get rid of the darkness by yelling at it. You just got to turn on the light. Amen, church?